please have a seat. Clicker. Great. Good morning, everyone. This was the psalm I read this morning. Didn't realize it was going to be so pertinent to what we just did. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute or the electric guitar, the harp or the bass guitar, to the melody of the lyre or to the keyboard. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. What an awesome psalm. Well, you might like to turn in your Bibles not to Psalms, but to Matthew chapter 7, which is where we're going to be this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name's Tony. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be taking us through our time in God's Word this morning. So let's turn to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. And we'll be reading from verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you or not an app on your phone, it'll be on the screen so you can follow along there. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Jesus says, Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck That is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent or a snake. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much that we can gather like this this morning, and it is a good thing to sing your praise, to give thanks to you for your steadfast love and faithfulness, to be glad because of who you are and what you've done and what you are doing, even as we gather here this morning. We thank you for your word and we pray now that you will take your word, Lord Jesus, by your powerful spirit and that you will bring it home to us in ways that bless and encourage, and challenge, and convict, and comfort. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. 
Well, you may or may not know, uh, but we are partway through our series that we've been working through in Matthew's Gospel called The King Who Saves. And we'll finish this around chapter 13, just as we get to Easter. And we'll probably come back to it uh, at the beginning of next year to do the second half leading up to Easter. And as we're there, we're also towards the end of perhaps the most famous part of the New Testament, or at least the most well-known part of the New Testament, that being the Sermon on the Mount. And we are going to land on that verse that probably just about everyone knows and quotes, Judge not, lest you be judged. But just a bit of a recap of where we've been in Matthew's Gospel as it has revealed to us the person of Jesus, who he is and what he's here for. We've seen that Jesus has come as God's promised king or Messiah or rescuer or deliverer to save people from their sins. We've seen that Jesus is the new Adam that triumphs where Adam failed and responds to God perfectly and sinlessly. We've seen that Jesus is the new Israel or the true Israelite who when tested in the wilderness doesn't grumble and complain and stop trusting his father but faithfully perseveres trusting God uh, and entrusting himself to God. We've seen Jesus is the new Moses who gathers the new people of God and sits down and teaches them the very words of God so they might know how to live as the people of God. We've seen him creating a new people as he does this, who will live for his glory, a people made new for the first time from the inside out through repentance and faith in him, a radical community of redeemed, not perfect, but redeemed people nonetheless who are experiencing new life through the person of Jesus. People from every nation, tribe, language and tongue who will love him and serve him. Now the Sermon on the Mount fleshes out what this new people will look like, what we will be marked by in terms of our character, what our priorities will be in terms of our focus, how we will respond to those who oppose us how we will give generously, knowing that our treasure is not here, but is God himself, how we will pray, what the focus of those prayers will be, how we will serve King Jesus and serve his people, how we will relate to God himself. As our Father, we've seen this phrase, your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, continue to recur throughout this sermon. And also, not just how we relate to our heavenly Father, but how we are to relate to one another as his children. And today, that's what our focus is going to be on. How are we going to relate to one another in kingdom relationships as each other's children? What does kingdom community look like? What should it look like? And how is it possible? What is God's kingdom community marked by? And I want to suggest to you there are two things in our passage today that we see we are to be marked by. We're to be marked as a people who are radically shaped by the Father's grace, 
People radically shaped by the Father's grace. And we see that in verse 1 and 2, right at the very outset, don't we? Let's read it again. Judge not that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Now do notice again, friends, don't fall into the trap of thinking that this, what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, is somehow achievable by us without God's help. Everything in this Sermon on the Mount is incredibly radical, right? It's radical. It's actually describing and picturing the fruit of a radically renewed people. And so it's the same here. How do we know that? Well, because what Jesus says here and calls us to do is not how we normally function, is it? Our default, unless you're radically different from me, and you can talk to me afterwards if you are, our default is to view ourselves always in a favourable light and to judge and assess others around about us. That's our default, if we're honest. It's incredible how we do it. Our default is to miraculously, almost miraculously, overlook our own sins and failures and shame and yet to see the sins of others with some kind of microscopic clarity. Have you noticed how good we are at doing that? This is not a, problem, not, a, not a problem unique to us. It's actually a universally human problem. It's part of what's wrong with the world. But the frightening thing is this, and this is what Jesus is getting at today. It's often worst amongst religious people. It's often worst amongst religious people, people like us, people who, people who gather in gatherings like this. Now, The most obvious examples that Jesus encountered of this was the religious leaders of his day. They had a particularly bad case of this and Jesus calls them out on it. In fact, when he gets to chapter 24 of Matthew, he pronounces seven woes on them. In other words, seven judgments on them. You can look at them later, but here's just one of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but which are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Remember again what Jesus said in chapter 5 about the righteousness of the Pharisees. And he says this to us, For unless your righteousness exceeds that, goes beyond that, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying here? Well, that there is a righteousness that we need to have to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that it is beyond the best efforts of the most devoted scribe or Pharisee or religious person. This righteousness is of a different kind altogether, a different quality altogether. It is a kingdom righteousness. It's radical in nature. It's actually acceptable to God. And so, friends, I'm pretty sure you're probably convinced of this already. It's definitely not a righteousness achieved by us. 
It can't be. It's a righteousness from God that is not achieved by us, but received by us through faith in Jesus Christ. We know from the rest of the New Testament that it's a gift, Romans 3 tells us. It's a gift from God that we receive when we turn from our sins and we put our trust and hope in Jesus Christ himself. And then after we've received this gift and we're clothed in this perfect righteousness that is, that is sufficient and more than enough for us to be acceptable before God now in the present tense, but also one day when we stand before him, then there begins this work in us where God works this righteousness into us by his power and grace, making us new. Which means, obviously, doesn't it? We should never place ourselves in the role of judge. We should never do it. We're to be people radically shaped by the Father's grace. Which means we are to be people without self-righteous superiority. Notice verse 3 and f- three to 5. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's almost comical, isn't it? The picture Jesus gives here of what it means to be self-righteous and hypocritical, to sit in the place of judgment on others, you kind of got to you've got to picture it for the for the full force of it to land on it. I mean, we all know what a log is, right? We've all chucked a log on the fire, or another log on the barbie, or a shrimp nut. I don't know. You can probably chuck both on, but you know, we know a log is kind of this big, and we know what a speck is. And the speck here is really referring to a splinter. So you got a log, and you've got a splinter, and so then you've got this person who's got this blooming massive log sticking out of their eye, and they're trying to reach past the log, probably knocking the person's head around with the log while they try and get the speck out of their eye. It's, it's almost comical if it wasn't so serious. To relate to one another in this way can only mean one thing, hypocrisy. And hypocrisy simply means play-acting. Not being real, to use our modern language. And the result of this kind of spiritual, self-righteous superiority, well, it results in you denying the reality of your own sin and shame, which doesn't sound so bad until you realise that that means you will forfeit your experience of and in your enjoyment of the grace of God in Jesus because you won't go to him for it if you don't see the log in your own eye. But more to the point, and in terms of kingdom relationships, it means you will damage or even destroy relationships within the people of God. Which is why Jesus calls us away from it as people who are to be radically shaped by the Father's grace. 
Now, an important question at this point. Does Jesus mean here that we're never to judge and never to critique critique anything or anyone? Uh, Is it legitimate for people to say that to judge is not becoming of a Christian? That we shouldn't do it at all? Is that what Jesus means here? Well, friends, clearly not. Because if you just drop your eyes down the page a little bit to the passage that we'll be looking at next week in verse 15, he says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruits. Beware of them, he says. How am I going to be aware of them? I don't know who they are. I'm not supposed to judge. No, no, Jesus says you will recognise them by their fruits, by what their lives are like, and particularly by the influence they have as false prophets on others. Jesus has already said, as we saw earlier, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Clearly, he's saying you've got to look at that righteousness, you've got to assess it, you've got to critique it, you've got to judge it, and you've got to go, it's insufficient. So you're critiquing and judging at that point. And then even in our passage today, which we'll get to in a few minutes, in verse 6, Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Clearly he's saying you need to be discerning and you need to discern who the dogs are and who the pigs are and respond accordingly. Now that may sound strange and it is a little, but we'll get to it. So Jesus is not ruling out any form of discernment or judgment among Christians. What he is ruling out is self-righteous superiority among people. That's what he's ruling out. Because we are to be a people who are radically shaped by the Father's grace. Which means we're to be without self-righteous superiority but we are to be people who have humility and who are marked by mutual vulnerability this is what it will look like if by God's grace we get clarity about our own sin because then and only then will we be able to help others fight their sin and deal with their sin. And I want to suggest to you that what Jesus is picturing here is something precious that can happen amongst God's people. Do you see again what Jesus is saying? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own and so on? Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See what he's saying? He's warning us of the danger of 
uh, self-righteous superiority, but he's showing us at the same time the wonder of grace-shaped relationship where two people who know full well the magnitude, if you like, the log of their sins and who have experiencing and are currently experiencing and living under the grace of God in relation to that, where two people can help each other pursue holiness and seek first the kingdom of God and so on. When we take the log out of our eyes, we can deal with our own sin with Jesus and we can help our brother or sister with theirs. Now surely this is what James the Apostle was referring to in chapter 5 verse 16 when he says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Do you see the mutual humility and vulnerability in that text? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You see why I'm wanting to suggest to you that when that happens, it's a precious thing. It's a kingdom thing. It's a gospel thing. We didn't bring it about. Jesus has so worked in our lives that we're in a place to walk with one another with humility and mutual vulnerability. It's a holy thing when this happens. Which I think is why Jesus says what he says next. In verse 6, Do not give to the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, that might seem uh, unrelated at first and potentially unclear also, but actually Jesus is making a really important point here. He's saying this, there are those that you cannot walk with humility and mutual vulnerability with. You cannot. More than that, he warns you not to do so. He warns you not to attempt to do it with these kinds of people. Why? Well, he describes them in graphic terms, doesn't he? He describes them as dogs and pigs. Those who will not value the preciousness of that humility and that vulnerability. They will trample on it. They will take advantage of any vulnerability that you might show as you lay your life on the table. And they will turn and they will attack you because of it. The picture we have here is of beastly, unclean, defiled, vicious people. These are not domesticated dogs that you might have in your home 
who curl up on the couch next to you and drift off to sleep while you watch telly. These are not the dogs that Jesus is talking about. These are feral dogs who roam the streets at night in packs, seeing what they can tear apart and devour. And these are not cute little pigs, you know, that you also might have as a pet. I don't quite understand why people do have them as a pet. I'm not judging. That's certainly not what I'm supposed to do clearly in this passage this morning if you have a pig. But these are not those kinds of pigs. These are wild boars that will charge you and gore you wide open. In the context of Matthew's Gospel, those who Jesus encountered, they are most likely the religious types, the self-righteous ones, those who are in many ways like the scribes and Pharisees who literally turned on Jesus, the Son of God who humbled himself and was found in appearance as a man. They turned on him. They attacked him. They tore him to shreds. These are those kinds of people who, if called out on their sin, show their teeth and look to tear others apart. And Jesus says to his kingdom people, don't try and do kingdom community with them. Don't give to them what is holy and precious. They don't want it. They don't value it. They will only stomp on you and potentially attack you. Wow. So do you see what Jesus says and how he says this? For your protection? Yes, he calls us to walk humbly with one another as followers of Jesus. Absolutely. Yes, he calls us to walk with mutual vulnerability as followers of Jesus who have experienced the grace of Jesus in relation to our sin, but he is not calling you to do that naively. but with discernment. That's what it looks like to be people radically shaped by the Father's grace. Now, growing up, my mum uh, basically was very creative and very gifted at art. She took up painting, but she also took up pottery. And uh, when my mum took up something, she went completely full into it, to the point where my dad had to build a kiln Uh, at our place, which took over the majority of his shed. It was massive. And every week, that kiln would be fired up and filled with all that mum had made that week and all that we were going to load into the car that week and take off to the exhibition to sell. And I always remember being super impressed with what my mum could do with a lump of clay particularly after I had a go. I don't know whether you've ever tried it. It's, it's, it's the unimpossible. But she was really good at it. And many people are. But what about shaping sinners into a new people of God who seek first the kingdom of God? What about shaping sinners into people who are aware of their sin and as a result rejoice in Jesus? What must it take 
for that to happen in our lives and in each other's lives. Friends, nothing less than the powerful, transforming grace of our Heavenly Father. Nothing less than that. Nothing less than that. You can't do it. I can't do it. Our Father can and our Father does. So let me ask you, to what extent is the Father's grace shaping you at the moment? How are you going facing the logs, the reality of those logs, in your own eyes? Are you aware of them? Or are you blind to them? Is the Father's grace shaping you at that point? How often are you sitting in judgment on others, assessing their lives for them, while all the time conveniently ignoring and denying the things that Jesus clearly sees in your life? How often are you glad of the grace of Jesus towards you, towards your sins and your failures, but at the same time weirdly harsh and critical towards others about theirs, either privately in the privacy of your own home or worse, publicly with others? in gossip. Or does the awareness of your sin and God's grace make you more gracious towards others? Is there a humility in you that draws attention to the grace of God to you? Because like I said, these kingdom characteristics, these kingdom realities that Jesus works in our lives are radical and they are therefore rare in the world. So as Jesus works them in us, they are meant to be a signpost or a pointer to him. Does the awareness of your own sin see you resting in the grace of Jesus more? Or does it see you condemning yourself and running from Jesus? And I just say, if that's you, if when you fail, you move away from Jesus rather than move towards him, that's not what he wants for you. Jesus is more aware than anyone of the logs in our lives. And they are the very things he went to the cross for. Yes, we need to acknowledge them. But then we need to run to Jesus with them into his grace. Perhaps some of us are here this morning and we feel guilty for not continuing to seek peace with someone who repeatedly stomps on those attempts. 
We can feel guilty, right? Because we think, oh, we've just got to make it right. We've just got to make it right. We need, to, we need to make peace. We need to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. No matter what comes back, no matter how hard it comes back, no matter how inflamed things come back. Jesus is saying, don't do it. You don't have to do it. Don't throw that which is holy to the dogs. You don't have to do that. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As much as it depends on you. But that's all you're responsible for. You may get an awesome response. And you may be fully at peace. But someone may not be responding well at all. Well, as much as it depends on you, you've done what you were supposed to do. This is what kingdom communities look like. It's made up of people radically shaped by the Father's grace. But secondly, it's made up of people deeply reliant on the Father's grace. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and the one who seeks and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now again, (laughs) I hope you've noticed as we've been working our way through even these few verses, this is radical, what Jesus calls us to. It's radical. How is it possible? If we're honest, we've got to say, it feels like it's beyond us. And it is. That's exactly the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The life that is described by Jesus is a life that comes to us as a gift from God, who is pictured, notice, as a good father who gives gifts to those who come to him. So just when we're about to throw up our hands in despair and say, I can't. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Open, sorry, knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus invites us to seek from God our Father all that we need to live for God our Father. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? And these three words give us insight insight into how we're to do this. Firstly, we're to ask, which makes it clear we're to do this in dependence on God. Uh, We know from earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already said, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. But then he says, this is how you should pray. Our father who is in heaven, give us this day. Ask. Why? Why? Because to ask is to live out our relationship with God, our Father. To ask is to live in dependence on him for all we need to live for him. To ask. Seek. Well, what does seek tell us? Seek tells us we do this deliberately. Seek, Jesus says. Last week we saw him say, seek first the kingdom of God. And from there we see that our lives are to be not accidental but intentional. Not kind of, you know, just drifting along but focused. We are to seek first the kingdom of God, to pursue it together from God. And knock. What is that picture? That's what you have to do at our place sometimes when the doorbell doesn't work. You have to keep going until someone realises you're at the door. 
it speaks of persistence, doesn't it? Remember the persistent widow. She kept knocking until the guy's like, oh my goodness, I'm getting out of bed, I'm going to give her whatever she wants. Seek, ask, knock. In fact, all these three words, this asking and this seeking and this knocking, they're all in the present ongoing tense. So they're not one-ofs. They're actually a way of life. Asking, seeking and knocking. That's our lives. If we're going to live kingdom lives, it's to be part of our daily existence. And again, this shows us the kinds of things we're to pray for. What are we to pray for? Well, we're to pray that we might be totally gripped by the grace of God, that we might be aware of our sins and grateful for what Jesus has done for us, that there might be a humility in us, and that we might have friends and brothers and sisters in Christ that we can walk in mutual vulnerability with and help each other grow. There's a whole bunch of things there that Jesus says, if you haven't got them, ask, seek, and knock. And he says, it will be given to you, the door will be opened, and you will find so encouraging, isn't it? I don't know what your prayer life was like last week, but I hope it's going to be even better this week based on that. And if that wasn't enough, verse 9 to 11, Jesus gives us like not, not just practical encouragement, but warm encouragement to come and ask for these things. Which of you, he says, if his son asks for a fish, he's going to give him a snake. And if you who are evil, if you who have fallen, if you who are in need of redemption know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more is your Father in heaven? How much more? How much more? Father who is both sovereign and good, who loves you as his children, and who loves you to give good gifts to his children who come and ask him gifts that are for our good and for his glory. The illustration is clear, isn't it? We know how to give good gifts to our children. We don't always do it, but we know how to do it and occasionally we do do it. And even then sometimes we actually actually have a real delight in doing it. How much more? How much more? Your Father in heaven. God's kingdom community is made up of people shaped radically by the Father's grace and deeply reliant on it. Deeply reliant on it. I wonder this morning, do you believe? Are you convinced as you sit here today, right here, right now, Are you convinced that your heavenly Father delights to give you good gifts? Sometimes that confidence gets gets kind of blunted, doesn't it? With the hardships of life. More personally, Are you convinced that your heavenly Father delights to give them to you? To you. If not, why not? Why not? 
In a few minutes we'll look at that classic verse in Romans that says, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who's the he? It's the father. Is this how you see the Christian life, being part of God's community? A life deeply reliant and sustained by the Father's grace to you. A life lived out in the day-to-day from a renewed heart. And a heart that's being renewed from the inside out. Or do you see it as some kind of insurmountable, impossible, unreality that can never happen for me? And you'll just have to live with an overwhelming sense of failure forever. And friends, if it depended on you and me and our efforts, that would be true. That would be true. But that's not what the Father wants for us, nor what he promises to us. If that's where we're at today, then today could be a new day for us. A day when we hear the invitation from our good and gracious Father to come to him for the good gifts that he delights to give. To come to him for his grace in order to live for him with joy. Will we come to him today? That's probably the question as we go home. Oh, and tomorrow. Oh, and Tuesday. And Wednesday. Is there a regular appointment in our iCal diary or Samsung diary or whatever diary we use? Is there a regular appointment where we come and ask and seek and knock? Because there needs to be clearly according to the words of Jesus. Will you come? Maybe for the first time. That would be awesome. God holds out his grace to you in the Lord Jesus. He died for your sins and rose again. Maybe you come to him for the first time today through Jesus who forgives you, finally realising that this righteousness that you know you can never, ever achieve is something that through Jesus you can receive. That's totally acceptable to God. Because Jesus went to the cross for you. Will you come and receive the Father's grace and as a result, will you come and experience the Father's embrace? Maybe you're just weary and you need to come to him afresh. Maybe you're battle weary, maybe life's been tough and your tank is low. Maybe you're overwhelmed by the circumstances you're in and the ways that you've struggled to respond and trust Jesus, your shortcomings in your responses. Maybe you just need to come to the Father for grace today. Friends, how much more, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Can I ask you to just take a moment in quietness, think about your own relationship with your Heavenly Father, how awesome it is that you can come to Him, look to Him, lean on Him, rest in Him, receive from Him, so that you might rejoice in Him and live for Him. And then we're going to take communion together as we continue to respond
to these words of Jesus today.